Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Sometimes the things we have make others jealous, but that doesn't mean we need to give them up. In her lecture, Pride and Privilege, How Do We Sensitively Navigate and Appreciate Having More Than Others?, Dina Weiss suggests ways to engage with the privilege we have in a way that is both respectful and mindful of the experience of those around us. Let's listen. Our class today is about privilege. Um, Privilege is a topic that has been in the consciousness and in the conversation a lot recently. And I would say, you know, with COVID, a lot of the differences between different people and how much privilege we have, it's really been exacerbated, right? Those of us who have the kinds of jobs where we can work from home, right, might even be saving money because we don't have to fill our cars with gas, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not, we're not eating out lunch. And then people for whom, you know, they were already just scraping by, you know, this has been a totally, really just horrible blow but not even financially or racially, right? Even just in terms of the kind of softer, really soft capital, right? That people have, you know, there's been a loneliness epidemic that's only been exacerbated, right? By people that can't get together with close friends or loved ones, right? People who are maybe many of us here, right? Who live alone and being in, you know, this kind of situation where you can't go out and have normal human interactions is really exacerbating that. Right. And people who have privilege of living situation with people that they love. Right. That is now being really contrasted with people who don't have that privilege of being able to live with people that they love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like this is the topic is, you know, supposed to be related to gratitude. Um, And we are going to talk a little bit about how to really navigate right our discomfort with the level of privilege that we have and the obligation to feel grateful um, for what we have. And we are going to talk about navigating that tension. Even before we get there, really just want to acknowledge that we are living in a time of really heightened, heightened um, privilege disparities in ways that we're not always necessarily thinking about and not always unnecessarily conscious of. Um, And so what I really want to say even um, before we get into um, any of the texts, is just to be very clear about what we're not talking about. What we're not talking about is the redistribution of wealth and other kinds of privilege. Okay, and one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that as you're thinking about privilege, you're also thinking about privilege like, do I have children or do I not have children? Right. And actually, that cuts both ways. There's the privilege of not having to worry about Zoom schooling your kids. And then there's the privilege of having kids and having somebody in your life, you know, in your house at the same time. Right. Either one of those is a different kind of privilege, depending um, on which side you're on. Right. But but we are not actually talking about redistribution of privilege because there's some types right, of good fortune and, you know, positive situations that we're in that we don't want to, right, in any way change, right? So this is not a class about if you have five children and your friend has has no children, giving your friends two of your children, right? That is not something that is realistic. Um, When we are talking about, um, you know, fungible types of privilege like money, right, I think that we do want to have the conversation about what it means to distribute wealth more fairly. 
but that is not our topic here. So the first example that we are going to talk about, um, which I think really drives home um, the question of privilege and that we're not necessarily talking about privilege one shouldn't have or should feel uncomfortable about having, is we're actually going to be talking about the privilege of having more access to doing mitzvot than other people. Okay, and we would never say to someone, you have too much access to doing mitzvot, you need to be somewhere else. Okay, so even the fact that this is going to be our first example, right, really drives home the point that we've been making so far, which is that we're not necessarily talking about redistributing privilege, we're actually talking about navigating it sensitively. And so here we have the Hatanya, is it not taught in a Braita? A Braita is a text that is written around the same time as the Mishnah. One should not walk in a cemetery with their tefillin on their head or a Sefer Torah in their arm, which they are reading. And if they do so, they violate this principle of lo'eg l'rash cheref osehu. One who mocks the poor disparages the one who made him. So this is actually a term um, that then is, is reused in rabbinic literature and in and a later halachic and later legal literature, right? This, this image of lo'eg l'rash, right? Mocking the poor, where you're essentially reminding them or highlighting for them that there is a disparity between you and them, right? And interestingly, right, what this pasuk says is, and that affront doesn't just go to, right, the person who you are intentionally or unintentionally mocking, it goes right to God. Okay, God is the one who is being disparaged because in a certain sense, right, there's a blame of God here that God has distributed privilege unevenly, right? And this example is so important and so interesting first because the type of privilege that we're talking about is the ability to wear tefillin or read from the Torah or engage in Torah learning and that the people who we're talking about as the rush the people who are the poor people, right, are not actually people who are alive, right? We're talking about people who are dead, okay? We're walking in a cemetery, okay? So this really shows you that the Torah is concerned about a level of sensitivity that goes beyond what we might think is necessary. Um, and we're going to see Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yonatan kind of talk out the relevance, right, of, of, of needing to be sensitive to dead people. Okay, so Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yonatan were strolling in the cemetery. I guess, you know, they didn't have that many um, open spaces in which to take walks. And the blue strings, the tailet, Rabbi Yonatan's tzitzit were dragging on the graves. Okay, and you could sort of, if the dead really are aware, Right, of what's going on, that's like a really unpleasant experience for them, right? That actually someone's dragging the tzitzit on their grave. It's almost like slapping them in the face with their tzitzit. Rabbi Chia said to him, said to Rabbi Yonatan, lift them up, pick up your tzitzit. They're dragging on the graves so that they, that is the people who are dead, don't say, tomorrow they are coming to join us, but now they disparage us. And then Rabbi Yonatan says back to him, do they really know that? 
right? I understand that it might be insulting for me to drag my tzitzit across the face of someone who's alive, but it says in Ecclesiastes, that the dead don't know anything. So why are you yelling at me for being insensitive to someone who's not sensitive? This person doesn't know what's happening. And so Rabbi Chia said to him, if you read it, that is this pasuk, where you're claiming that the dead don't know anything about what's going on in the world, if you read it, you didn't review it. And if you reviewed it, you didn't read it a third time. And if you read it a third time, they didn't explain to you. Essentially saying, you have a very superficial understanding, Rabbi Yonatan. Let me explain it to you. Okay, this is the continuation of the verse. For the living know that they will die. These are the righteous who are called living even in their death. Okay, so we have this idea that there's more of a continuum between people who are alive and people who are dead than we think. Um, and essentially, but you can't write off this person and say, oh, for sure they're not aware or for sure they don't care because they're dead. Because actually, the amount of information that you have is limited. And this very sharp distinction that you're trying to draw between people who are considered alive and people who are considered dead is actually not, uh, not valid. Like I said before, right here, the primary category of privilege is mitzvot. Okay, so clearly we're not talking about, there's nothing wrong with wearing tefillin, but there is something wrong with wearing your tefillin in the cemetery where somebody is going to be insulted. Right, and I think the reason why the Gemara uses this very extreme example of people who are dead is to drill into us the point that we can't decide, oh, that person doesn't care. They're not aware or they're not used to it. Right? We have to use the most extreme level of sensitivity possible. If there's any possible chance in the world including that dead people know what's happening in the land of the living, right? We have to be sensitive to that. Um, so this Gemara is really designed to, to be really explicit, right? About how serious this infraction is, that there's no one about whom we can say, it doesn't matter to them. We don't have to be sensitive to their feelings. This continuity of life is a very interesting concept. To me, and I think we don't think that way. So I, I think this Keta and others are trying to encourage us to look differently at life and its beginning and its non end. Good. So, I, so I'm glad that you picked up on that. I would say there's actually two ways of reading um, this needing to be sensitive to the dead. Right. One way of reading it is the way that I have been reading it up to this point, which is that it actually is about the dead. Um, and we really need to be sensitive to anyone who's on the continuum of life, including someone who's not dead. But I'm sure many of us here have heard that we cover the challah on Friday night while we make kiddush so that we don't embarrass the challah. Right now, of course, challahs don't have feelings. Right. They're really not on the spectrum of life. And, and the real reason for this actually does not have to do with the challah's feelings. It has to do with what's the correct hierarchy of blessings when you're at a meal, right? But when we tell our children, 
we're covering the challah so that they don't get embarrassed, right? That's not about suggesting to our children that challahs have feelings, right? That's actually about what it says about us, right? That we want to be sensitive people, period, right? And instead of looking for excuses, you know, this person will care, or this person is just a challah, right? And this person is, is no longer with us, right? Instead, be looking for opportunities to be sensitive, because that makes us into sensitive people, as opposed to asking ourselves whether or not we should be sensitive, right? We should never be asking ourselves, do we need to be sensitive at this moment? Instead, we should be always asking ourselves, what is the optimal way for me to behave now? How can I be more sensitive? Even if there isn't anybody who we're aware of on the receiving end. Um, and I'm bringing you the rush. It's one of the earliest um, legal commentaries on the Talmud. He makes, I think, a very important legal distinction that is that is actually very significant for our conversation. And it is specifically regarding tefillin and other similar mitzvot that it is prohibited to wear or perform them in a cemetery, right? He's saying, I want to focus on these examples of the tzitzit and tefillin because there's actually something embedded here where it's excluding other mitzvot. Okay, but tzitzit, which is a mitzvah for one's clothes, it is permitted since one can't strip off their clothes when they walk in a cemetery. And the proof for this is that Rabbi Chia told Rabbi Yonatan to lift up his tzitzit rather than take them off. So we see that they were wearing tzitzit on their primary garments. So a person would only have to make sure to lift up the tzitzit, that is the strings themselves, and not take off the garment. Okay, so the rush is actually bringing in some reality here. By the time we're in the Middle Ages, when the rush is writing, people do not wear togas, okay? People are wearing more tailored clothing. The, um, the obligation to wear tzitzit only applies to a garment that has four corners. And it used to be that that was essentially what garments were. You were wearing a bolt of cloth that you would fasten in different ways, like a toga or a sari, etc. But then when clothing styles became a little bit more sophisticated and more tailored, then we came into the reality that we're in now, which is people will specifically purchase a talit or a talit katan in order to be able to fulfill the mitzvah of putting strings on it because we don't walk around wearing four-quartered garments. That's just our garments don't look like that anymore. Okay, so the rush is saying, if you're in a society and a culture where that is your garment, okay? And so it happens to be that there's an overlap here between a mitzvah that you're performing that might make somebody feel underprivileged and right, your own dignity right, and, um, and the fact that you're wearing clothing, you need to take off your clothes. But there's this middle path, which I think is so important. Wear your clothes in a way that doesn't flaunt the mitzvah aspect of it, okay? Right, so what the rush is saying here, which is he's not talking about privilege, but it's actually perfect language for the conversation that we're having, is he's saying there are two extremes. 
One extreme is, I don't care. This is what I want to wear. If you don't like it, deal with it. The other extreme is, oh my God, my clothing offends you or my clothing hurts your feelings. This is terrible. I have to strip off everything I'm wearing. Right. And the middle path is, well, if what you're wearing is a mitzvah and you're not going to take it off, because why should you shame yourself by walking around naked in the cemetery? Fine. Right. You don't have to take off your clothes, but. And also, you shouldn't take off your clothes, right? You shouldn't be shaming yourself. But you should be careful about how you're wearing those clothes and tuck in your titi. Okay. Right? And he says that it's um, after the ellipses now. Um, but as far as our talit, since we don't wear them as a garment, but do so only to fulfill the mitzvah titi, it will be equivalent to tefillin, where loe glarash, mocking the poor, would be a relevant issue. Right. He says, you know, for Rabbi Yonatan, who is wearing uh, Talit as his clothes, he has to tuck in the strings. But for us, if we're wearing a Talit, we're only doing it in order to fulfill the mitzvah and we can't wear the Talit at all. He's trying to situate you culturally to determine for you whether or not you're allowed to just tuck it in or whether you actually have to take it off. Um, and I want to continue this thinking of the rush. Um, and really explore why is tzitzit the example that's being used here? Um, and ask ourselves, are we only talking about tzitzit? Um, so the mitzvah of tzitzit is, and they will be tzitzit for you. And you will see them or see it. And you remember all of the mitzvot of God. And you will do that. Okay, and so what's really important about the mitzvah of tzitzit is that embedded in the mitzvah of tzitzit is all of the mitzvah, right? You are going to see the tzitzit and be reminded of all of the mitzvah, all right? And so here we have, I think, two layers. One is that clearly the tzitzit conversation is not just about tzitzit because tzitzit themselves, right, are actually designed to refer to all of the mitzvot of the Torah, right? That's one layer. And another layer is, and now you can understand, right, the psychological impact for these dead people of seeing tzitzit, right? Tzitzit is actually the kind of mitzvah that's designed to remind you of the other mitzvot. And so you could imagine someone, if they saw you, I don't know, waving your lulav, they would just notice you waving your lulav. But tzitzit has this really strong resonance of all of the other mitzvot that you would imagine, right? This person would sort of go down a spiral of, oh my gosh, I can't fulfill tzitzit and I can't give tzedakah and I can't pray and there's all these things that I can't do, um, right? And so tzitzit have, are kind of standing in for the psychological kind of chain of, I think about this and then I think about that and I think about the third thing, right? And the reason why this is significant is because you yourself can say, this is just one mitzvah. Or this is just one, you know, fancy dress that I'm wearing that my friend can't afford. Or this is just, you know, one picture of my of my grandchildren, you know, that my friend who doesn't have grandchildren has to see. But from their perspective, it might not be emotionally true that for them it's just one picture, right? For them, that picture could trigger a ton of feelings about relationships that didn't work out 
about miscarriages, about other kinds of disappointments, that your small act from your perspective is small, but from the perspective of the receiver could actually be kind of a trigger for them to be thinking about all sorts of other things that are difficult for them. There's this important recognition that we need to have that what we're doing might be small, but the impact could be large. And we don't know, right? Just like we don't know about how much the dead know, we don't know what the impact is going to be on the person who sees us, right? We don't know what the emotional toll is going to be. And the emotional toll could be huge, even if our action is very small and not even that insensitive. Um, and the last thing that I wanna say about the tzitzit as an image, right, is that the pasuk says, Uri'ite moto, you should see them, okay? And actually, right, the ideal way to perform the mitzvah of tzitzit is to have the tzitzit be visible to you in some way, okay? And so to tell Rabbi Yonatan, you need to tuck in your tzitzit, is essentially to tell him, you have to perform this mitzvah in a subpar way in a non-ideal way, in a way that is um, in some ways going to invalidate the mitzvah for you in order for you to be sensitive to someone else, okay? You need to take a hit on your own performance of this mitzvah for the sake of being sensitive to other people. Now, again, we're not going all the way to the rush and, you know, beyond the rush, right? And saying, well, you got to strip off your TT. No, you can have your TT, but you're going to have to tuck them in. There's this kind of, you know, very, um, very small sacrifice that you are going to have to make. It's not extreme, but it's real. Okay. And you can imagine someone saying, well, what's the point of my wearing TT if I can't show them? Off? And you have to say to them, right, it is going to invalidate a little bit of the point of TT but you're doing this to be sensitive to someone else. I, I want to I wanna just look at this Yerushalmi that focuses not on the, in the tzitzit element, but focuses on the cemetery element um, to really sort of get to more of what Loeg the Rush, mocking the poor, is really prohibiting. So Rabbi Zera said in the name of Rabbi Abba Bar Yirmiya, a person shouldn't go to a cemetery and go to the bathroom there. And if he does so, about him, the verse says, one who mocks the poor disparages the one who made him. Now, in the time before out before indoor plumbing, okay, people would just go to the bathroom wherever they could find, wherever it would be remote. Okay, so, like, usually that would mean some sort of outhouse or, let's say, like, the, the city dump. Right, you would sort of go to the city dump and you would do your business there and then you would go back to where everybody was living. And you could imagine the cemetery, right, is a remote area. Seems like an ideal rest stop and somebody might be tempted to go to the bathroom there. Um, but Rebbe Zayra says, absolutely not. You cannot go to the bathroom there because of this element of mocking the poor. Okay, and he doesn't say it's not respectful to the dead, right? Which, you know, which would be my instinct. Instead, he says it's mocking the poor, which puts it in the same category as wearing tzitzit in the presence of the dead, okay? And so essentially what Rabbi Zera is saying, 
the person who is dead, he is jealous of everything that it means to be alive. Even the thing in your life that you find to be gross, inconvenient, etc. Because that person doesn't have it, because they don't have that access, it becomes something desirable to them. And right, and so I think this is actually a really important piece of the privilege puzzle, right? Is that when we're talking about privilege, we may not even be talking about something that is kind of like objectively good. We're talking about something that you have and someone else doesn't have. And it requires us to be even more sensitive, right? That it, it that something that we don't consider to be positive or valuable, but somebody else might consider to be positive and valuable, we need to be sensitive to that. Um, you know, and I just really want to bring it back to the example that I've been using because I think it's just so apt, right, for the time that we're in. You know, the person who is who is complaining about totally justifiably complaining about having to take care of their children, have a full-time job, right, and not be able to leave the house, all of that is extremely, extremely hard. And for them, something that's very unpleasant that they're dealing with, a major source of stress. And they would say to themselves, oh, if only I had off, if only I didn't have children, my life would be so easy now. But from the person who's on the receiving end, who just lost their job, and would be, would love to be under the kind of stress that you're under, doesn't have children, and would love, right, to be burnt on both ends, trying to get their kids to pay attention in school, right? I think this is actually where the rubber really meets the road. For the perspective of the overtaxed, working full-time parent, they just want a break from this blessing, right? But from the person who's viewing it from the outside and doesn't have those pressures, what you're portraying as a negative Right to them is the fulfillment of their wildest dreams. Yes, it's nobody, nobody's wildest dream to be, you know, to have so much responsibility they can't manage, right? But they're seeing in your frustration um, something that they actually themselves are really desirous of having. So for you, the alive person, it's really convenient to have to go poop out in the wilderness. It would be just so much convenient, so much more convenient if you didn't have to go to the bathroom. But the dead person is saying, I will give anything to be alive. I would go to the ends of the, of the earth to poop. Right? You don't care um, because you're sort of focusing on how it's inconvenient for you and not thinking about actually, right, what the alternative would be and how terrible it would be. Where we're going to move now is the Gemara in Bavli, um, on Tanit, which is talking about fasting. Um, and we are accustomed to fast days as being something that sort of comes on the calendar on a regular basis. We either fast or we don't fast, but they're not surprises. Okay, but back in the times of the Mishnah and the Talmud, and also actually not so recent history, it is something that can and still um, is done on occasion, is they will declare a fast day because of some sort of emergency. Okay, and so you could be in a situation where there's a terrible tragedy befalling one city. So the rabbis of that city are going to declare a fast, but everybody else is actually fine. Okay, and so in your city, there's not going to be a fast. So here we go. We have another brighter. One who goes from a place where they are not fasting to a place where they are fasting, he fasts with them. 
Okay, so here we have uh, an example, right? It actually doesn't affect you. You don't need the fast. It's not going to save your city. But when you are going somewhere where everybody else is fasting, you need to comply and you need to fast with them. Um, and one who goes from a place where they are fasting to a place where they are not fasting completes his fast. Okay, right? So essentially, you're just going to go with the more strict. If your city is fasting, even once you leave, you're going to continue fasting. And if you're going to a city where everyone else is fasting, you're just going to join in with them, even if it's not your personal need. And here's the part of the writer that I think is important. What if he forgot to fast? Okay, it's not a regular fast. It's not part of his consciousness. He goes to the city, doesn't realize. If he forgot the fast and ate and drank, he should not display this publicly and he should not indulge in luxuries. Okay, right. So essentially, right, the Brita is saying here, it's not an all or nothing, zero sum game. Either I'm fasting or I'm not fasting. If it turns out that you're not fasting, then you have to be modest about it, right? And you don't overindulge. As it says, and Yaakov said to his sons, why should you display yourselves? Okay, the context here is that um, Yaakov and his sons have relative economic privilege that they can afford to buy food from Egypt when there's a famine in Canaan. And Yaakov says to his sons, don't show me, don't let other people know that you have food when they don't. Okay, Yaakov said to his sons, do not display yourselves when you are satiated, not before Esav, not before Ishmael, so that they not be jealous of you. Um, and, and the element here of, of where jealousy plays into this whole conversation is where I want to go next, right? Because there's one narrative that says, I have to be sensitive. But then there's another narrative, you know, which in many ways is valid, which says, well, why can't this person be happy for me? Or why can't this person control their emotions? Why do I need to police my behavior in order that someone else not feel jealous? The early sages used to say, right, this, this would be their prayer. May we not have envy about others and may others not envy us. And so we asked a very important question. Why would they pray that others should not possess this quality more than other evil qualities? Okay, so if we're saying it's a terrible thing to be a jealous person, and it's a terrible quality, and we should pray, right, that people not be jealous, that's very nice for you to pray for the moral, um, for the moral character of your friends. But also, why don't you pray that they're not angry? Why don't you pray that they're not arrogant? Why don't you pray that they become less stingy, right? Why is it jealousy that the rabbis are praying that other people don't have, okay? That's his question, it's a very good question. But this is the explanation of the matter. Many people cause others to envy them and covet their possessions. Therefore, they used to pray for others because maybe they were the cause of envy in others. And the Torah has said, Do not put a stumbling block before the blind. So the Orchot Tzadikim is essentially saying, jealousy is different 
than other types of bad qualities. Jealousy is something that you trigger and therefore you need to take responsibility for. Right, part of what you're praying for here, right, I think is also the ability to be sensitive and to know what's going to trigger this jealousy in other people. So both to have the sensitivity and I would say to have the strength, right? Because it's actually not easy for us to be really sensitive and not display our privilege. It's something that is not natural. Naturally, we want to show what we have. Not because we're trying to make people jealous, but just because it's part of the enjoyment for us, right? That we like to have and we like to show that we have. Okay, and so these stages are, are recognizing that's an innocent impulse. It can trigger this bad quality in someone else. And even though it's their bad quality, right? They're the ones who are jealous. They're the ones who have the problem. Yeah, but we're putting a stumbling block before the blind, right? We're making it really hard for them to be not jealous because we're throwing our good fortune in their face. Therefore, I'm continuing on. It is good for a man not to wear really nice or expensive garments, neither he nor his wife nor his children, and so with food and other matters so that others will not envy him. Okay, so the first approach, right, is is very straightforward. You don't want people to be jealous of you. Don't give them a reason to be jealous. Don't have the nicest clothes. Don't have the biggest house. Don't, okay? Then he becomes a little bit more nuanced and he continues, let whoever has been bestowed upon by the blessed creator, anyone who has good fortune because of what God has given them, let that person benefit others with their possessions, rich or poor. Okay. So the first approach, right, which is actually the approach that I don't, that I'm not advocating for in this class is, well, you shouldn't have nice things and that way nobody will be jealous of you. Okay. But what if we have nice things or what, what are the things that people are jealous of, right? Are things that we can't get rid of or shouldn't be asked to get rid of then what? Okay. Um, and so then the Orchotadikam says, okay, well, what are you doing with those possessions? Are you merely displaying them or are you sharing them? Right? Are you using what you have for the good? Then it's less of an issue, right? Then um, people will not have reason to be jealous of you because they're benefiting from what you have. Okay, right? And here I think it's really important that he's talking about material possessions and he's saying you should be generous with your material possessions, both for rich people and for poor people. Right. Let him conduct himself pleasantly with them and deal kindly with them. Right. And this is actually an extremely important point. Right. That one of the core things that contributes to a sense of jealousy is. That person is either as deserving or less deserving than me. And that's why it really bothers me that that person has more than I do. But what if we adjust the script? And we were really to become the people whom everybody acknowledged they use their wealth or they use their other forms of privilege 
in such a way where it's impossible to resent them for what they have, right? So let's say you have a really big house and other people might be jealous of your big house, but what if you're the kind of person that always has huge meals and invites everybody into your house and you need the space, right, to accommodate all of these guests? Or when, you know, when someone else is a guest from out of town, you are the first person who says, do you need room for your parents to stay? They're more than welcome to stay in my house. I have extra bedrooms. Okay. So yes, the person could still be jealous of the fact that you have a bigger, fancier house than they do. But because you're using it in a way that makes you deserving of it, you don't have to get rid of it and you don't have to hide it because what you're doing is you're allowing other people to participate in your privilege, right? They don't have a reason to be jealous of you or to resent you because you're not trying to lord it over them. You're actually trying to share it with them because I want to address like one more element um, that I think is really, really prevalent in the whole conversation about privilege, right? And that is, we might think that we only have to worry about displaying privilege to people who we think of as having less than us. Okay, so in the previous text, the Orthodox Sadiqim said, you have to share with the rich and the poor. And you might say to yourself, why do I need to share with the rich? <laughs> right? They have what I have. Why do I have to worry about them being jealous? I have three kids, they have three kids. I have a handsome husband, they have a handsome husband, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, um, and so I wanted to bring this Gemara and Abu Dazara because I think, um, it drives a human point that we often don't acknowledge. Okay, so there's this story where the uh, where Agrippas, who's this um, Greek general, asks Rabban Gamliel, "It is written in your Torah, the Lord your God is devouring fire, a jealous God." And Agrippa says, "Why is your God a jealous God?" Isn't only a wise person jealous of another wise person and a strong person, another strong person, a wealthy person, another wealthy person? Okay, so Agrippas' understanding is something that Rabbi Gamliel doesn't challenge. Rabbi Gamliel will respond, right? But, but, um, but Agrippas' starting assumption is wise people are jealous of other wise people. And strong people are jealous of other strong people. And wealthy people are jealous of other wealthy people. Right? The question is, why should God need to be jealous if nobody can compete with God? Okay, that's his question. But we're interested in his assumption, right? Which I think is 100% true, 100% accurate. I don't feel bad when I see Warren Buffett has a plane. Because I'm not in his tax bracket. And I'm not comparing myself to him. There's Warren Buffett and then there's me. He's wealthier than I am, but he's so much wealthier than I am that I don't even think about it. But my friend, right, who has, you know, my apartment is 850 square feet and their apartment is 875 square feet. That is nothing, right? But that extra 25 square feet is going to drive me crazy because theoretically I could afford that apartment. Right. That apartment is just a little bit nicer than mine. And therefore, I'm jealous. Right. So the logic that we have of well, we're in the same tax bracket, 
we are, we have the same family status, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're both attractive, yada yada yada, right? That excuse is actually the opposite. The more someone is closer to you in status, the more they're going to feel affronted by those small differences. And I would also add, right, the harder it often is for us to not want to show off the ways in which we're a little bit better, right? I don't want to go over to someone who does not have a home and show off that I just got a new fancy, I don't know, refrigerator. But to my friend who just redid her kitchen, my refrigerator is a little bit nicer, right? So to the temptation that we have to show up, I think it's also stronger when we're actually in this tighter race between me and someone who's actually in the same status, socioeconomic, et cetera, as I am. The last text that we're going to look at, the Sefer HaSinuch, is talking about this notion of Ona'at Devarim. Ona'at Devarim is mistreatment or exploitation in a verbal sense, okay? And so the Sefer Achinuch uses this topic to talk about how important it is to speak in an extremely sensitive way. Um, And it is fitting to be careful that no insult of people be heard even from a hint of his words. As the Torah was very concerned about mistreatment in words, since it is something very difficult for the heart of the creatures, meaning people. And many people are more concerned about it than about money. And as they say, may their memory be blessed, meaning Chazan, the rabbis, mistreatment of words, ona'at divarim, is greater than mistreatment of money. Okay, so if I'm exploitative to you in some sort of financial capacity, that's pretty bad. But if I'm cruel to you verbally, it's much worse. As it seems, and you shall fear your God, etc. Meaning, this is just the, the rabbinic interpretation of that, is, is that since Ona'atavarim, since speaking to someone in an insensitive manner is something that is so subjective, right, and something that is so ethereal, the only way that you are not going to do it is if you are God-fearing. Whereas not stealing from someone or not exploiting someone in a financial sense, right? You don't have to be that God-fearing to be careful about that. And it would not be possible to write all of the things that bring pain to people individually, right? We simply cannot exhaust, right? We cannot enumerate all of the different ways that something that we say could hurt someone else. But everyone needs to be careful according to what he sees. As God, blessed be he, knows all of his steps, right? Knows all of a person's steps and all of a person's hints. Because a person looks superficially, right? Looks in the eyes, but God looks to the heart. Um, And how many stories did they, may their memory be blessed, write in Midrashim to teach us ethics about this? And the essence of the matter is in the fourth chapter of Bava Metzia, et cetera. If anybody wants to look that up, you're more than welcome to look it up, right? But the Sefer Chinuch point here is 
having a conversation about wealth and who should have it is actually the easier conversation. What is much harder to do successfully is to be aware of and sensitive to all of the things that we could say or do in the subtlest of ways that could end up hurting someone's feelings. Right. And so the Sefer Hashanah is saying this conversation, right, is actually so much larger than it seems. It's so much more than an economic conversation. This is actually about learning how to be sensitive. And, right, the really difficult thing is that we don't know. We don't know what is going to trigger, right, somebody else's sensitivity. Someone else is going to feel, you know, insulted or hurt or left out or underprivileged or whatever it is, right, from something that we say, right, or I would say something that we say with our actions, right, or with the way that we present ourselves. Um, and I think that all of these texts in aggregate, right, are, are telling us that we need to really always err on the side of modest consumption, sensitive consumption, and maybe more importantly, shared consumption, right? When you share your privilege, whatever form it takes, right, then people are less resentful, less hurt. When they feel that you are trying to establish yourself as different or better than them, even if you're not, right? It's not something that's conscious. It's about how they are feeling and about how they are, um, are receiving it. And we don't know, right, how people are perceiving and how people are receiving. And therefore, it's on us to be hypersensitive, right? I would say in a way that's almost extreme in, in some of the way um, that ways that these texts are speaking. Um, and so my hope for us is that we really step into this approach of it's not actually the responsibility of these other people to manage their emotions. It's my responsibility to be as sensitive as possible. And that is extremely hard work because it means that I can't be as comfortable in my own skin, in my own life as I would want to. And it means that I always have this this consciousness that I might be hurting someone else's feelings without intending it and without knowing it. Um, and I think that if we have that consciousness, we're more likely to be successful, but there are no guarantees, right? And, all, and, and, and the image that we have of these rabbis who are praying that nobody become jealous of them, right? Why are they praying that nobody become jealous of them? Why don't they just employ all of these strategies be super sensitive guys, and no one's going to be jealous of them, right? And so I think that the image of them praying is, to me at least, you know, somewhat comforting, that they don't have confidence that they can do this really well, because we don't actually know what is triggering for other people, what is painful for other people, what they're experiencing. So we have to do the best that we can, um, and, you know, and pray for help uh, for the rest of it. So uh, there are kinds of privilege that can't be hidden, and it has nothing to do, I'm thinking, of course, of white skin privilege, and, and the privileges of that cannot be shared. I mean, I can give money, I can, I can hold up Black Lives Matter signs, I can vote certain ways, I can give money to organizations, but I cannot share white skin privilege. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. It's definitely true. My, my advice 
I don't know if you asked for it, right? I think that that the rabbis are suggesting, right, that the minimum you need to be aware, right? Because I think so many of us, especially with skin-based privilege, right, don't even realize that we are comfortable in spaces that other people aren't comfortable in, right? And so just having an awareness of, oh, I am privileged here, and maybe I'm taking up more space and feel more comfortable taking up more space because of the color of my skin might enable us to be more sensitive. Although it's definitely true, right? That it's, that it isn't a type of privilege that can be shared. Um, but maybe, right. We can still learn to be, have sensitivity and awareness around it. But I, I agree with you. It's really, it's quite difficult. And obviously a topic that is, should be, and is on the minds of, of all of us these days. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to respond to Marsha's question in the chat that she asked, is it more harmful to think we're worthier, better than others, than having more? Um, it, it's interesting that you phrased the question that way. I wouldn't actually use the language of thinking, right? Because I think that actually what we're concerned about here is not arrogance, but insensitivity. And those two aren't actually the same thing. You could think that you're better than someone else. That is either okay or it's a different problem, right? I think that what we're most concerned with, at least in this conversation, is giving other people the impression, right, that we think that we're, that we're better than them. And the question of whether or not that's worth or better than income inequality, that's not an answer that I can provide. That what I, what I want to make clear is even if you're not going to redistribute your privilege because you can't redistribute white skin or because you're not going to distribute your children, et cetera, et cetera, there needs to be an awareness that you need to have, that you have something that someone else doesn't and that that can be painful for them, even if you are not trying to flaunt it and even if, you know, you are you don't even consider it to be a privilege, right? like going to the bathroom. Jane chatted right under the wire, so I'll respond to her. So Jane asks, is there a limit to this? If someone is jealous and acting out, um, talking about you and it is something like your job. Okay, so I, would, I think it's a great question. I would actually put that in the category of, you don't need to strip off your talit, right? So that somebody else isn't going to be um, insulted by your tzitzit, right? So there, there is like a kind of, level of like you need to have dignity and you need to have self-respect and that is like core and then there's the question of what are the other extra things right that that might be unintentionally insensitive to people right but we're not I think asking you to take a hit on your dignity and on your sense of self we're instead just asking you to be aware of other people's dignities and other people's sense of self. So I think that's an important question. I look forward to hopefully learning with you in another context. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg. Thank you to Michal Birnbaum and Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.